Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. Great to have you with us today. Very excited for today's radio show. It's about real-world emotional intelligence for PhDs with Justin Bariso, uh, author of an incredible book. We're going to bring him on in our leadership section coming up. His book is EQ Applied. So EQ, EI, these are acronyms for emotional intelligence. Now, over the years, there's been uh, a lot of arguments, academic arguments, about whether emotional intelligence actually exists. It's one of those things where it sounds like a buzzword, it seems like there's a framework that's easy to understand because we can differentiate people that are really smart but are jerks, don't know how to build relationships, not socially aware, and those who are really smart or maybe not as smart in terms of book smart but get along with people really well, right? So that, that seems to make sense. But is there actually a difference? Maybe there, there's just IQ. People have really high IQ and they just decide whether or not to be nice. I don't know. That's why we have our special guest, Justin Bariso, on. Uh, we're going to go through some data about emotional intelligence, what it means uh, in terms of the data. Now, there's a lot of data being published about this in scientific journals uh, and beyond, and there's a lot of data being posted about this, and this, it, this data is being discussed in the world of industry, in, especially in terms of hiring. Hiring managers right now, recruiters, many of whom who don't, who don't have PhDs, they love this idea of emotional intelligence. They want to hire people who have high emotional intelligence. What does that mean to them? We're, we're going to go through some of the data, but really what it means to them is you are sensitive to the situations that you're in. You can read people well. We call that empathy. Okay, and as PhDs, you're able to do this. Believe it or not, you are. You've had, you've had to give multiple seminars, show your data, et cetera. Over time, whether you ignored it or not, you, were, you, you learned how to pick up on signals from people. Um, whether they were interested or bored, right? You, you saw pretty quickly whether or not your, your PI, your advisor, your thesis committee, if they were agreeing with what you were saying or they were disagreeing or getting upset by it or became disinterested, on and on, all right? So that is under this umbrella idea of emotional intelligence, your sensitivity to these things, your ability to be more of a uh, thermostat, if you've ever heard this phrase, than a thermometer, where you can go into a situation, into a company, into a meeting, and you can change the environment for the better rather than just read the environment. Anybody can walk into a room or a meeting and be like, wow, it's, this is a really tough situation. Here's all these problems. But going into that same situation and saying, hey, here's these problems and here's a few solutions. Here's why there's still, a, there's still possibilities here, opportunities and being solution focused. That is under the umbrella of being emotional intelligent. And that's where you have an advantage as a PhD. So don't get caught up on the overly academic side. What is emotional intelligence? 
well should the acronym of EQ or EI be used, right? These things that we tend to get into in the weeds. Think about the, the broader strokes and the advantages that you have as a PhD. You have high emotional intelligence, no matter how it's defined, because you can read people. You can get better at that. You know it's a skill. Maybe you're not good at reading people right now, right? We all have the, that person that we've worked with, maybe in a, in a lab or a classroom, where everything in your body language says, now's not a good time to talk to me, but they just keep talking to you, right? Don't be that person. Have the emotional intelligence that will help you behaviorally when you show up to an interview, when you go to a networking event. And there are things, there are words you can say now because this, this term, this phrase is exploding. If you look at the Google searches for emotional intelligence now versus 10 years ago even, uh, the numbers are exponentially increasing. So it is in the psyche, especially of hiring managers, recruiters, employers, it is something you need to understand. There are words that you can put on your resume, your LinkedIn profile that will indicate you have emotional intelligence, whether or not you think that emotional intelligence actually exists. So we're gonna dig into that and that's the end of the PhD Advantage section. We're gonna talk more about how you can use your emotional intelligence, your transferable skills, right? The interpersonal skills, the soft skills to your advantage to get hired. But now we're gonna go into the show me the data section. Uh, before we do that, I wanna mention two quick things. We have a very special webinar coming up. Academic versus industry research in 2020. You're seeing it on your screen if you're listening by audio only. It's cheekyscientist.com slash RDS dash academic dash VS dash industry dash research dash webinar. Uh, we will make that URL a bit shorter next time, but that's the webinar you can search for. Just Google search academic versus industry research in 2020. Uh, Cheeky scientist, if you are listening by audio. This happens on Thursday. So that's in two days, January 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure you sign up for that webinar. We have incredible uh, guests that are coming on to talk to you about the differences between academic research versus industry. Obviously the, the budgets that are used go towards different types of research, more basic research in academia, more translational, more development in industry. The R and D in industry is something you've heard of research and development, but the D is something most of you have zero experience with. We're gonna dig into that. The D, the development, uh, that's what you need to learn if you wanna get into this role in industry. So that's coming up on Thursday. We are also in the middle of a very special promotion for our Medical Science Liaison Alliance program. It closes tomorrow on Wednesday, January 29th. If you wanna become a medical science uh, liaison professional, if you wanna get into the medical affairs field, which is exploding right now for PhDs, go to msla.cheekyscientist.com. We have special promotional pricing. So for those of you that are on our email list, make sure you're checking your emails. If you're following us on Facebook Messenger, make sure you're checking that as well for those promotion promotions again that ends uh, January 29th, so Wednesday, January 29th in one day. Okay, so we're gonna jump into the show, the show me the data section. I'm very excited to do this because there's a lot of great figures here uh, to discuss and because we get to bring on Mary, who's already here. She beat me to it. Hi, Mary, good to see you. <laughs> great, how are you? <laughs> Please say hello to Mary in the chat box if you would, if you can see and hear her okay. I'm gonna look for a couple of yeses. Say hello, Mary, thanks for being here. If you haven't met Mary yet, this is Mary. She's the CEO of Scientist, and she comes on the radio show to help us with the Show Me the Data section because she's smarter than me. So we're going to move into the data now, and we're going to look at a very basic figure that's going to help you understand a bit more about emotional intelligence 
the framework, what is it? It's a lot of things that you already know about. It's self-awareness, professional awareness, which we talk a lot about, right? Your ability to manage yourself, manage relationships. And we can look at this figure here for those of you listening by audio. This is a report that was posted in the Huffington Post. And again, we're looking at just a basic figure. It looks like a, a Venn diagram where you have personal competence and social competence as the headers for the rows. And then you have what I see versus what I do, right? So seeing, observing versus actions uh, as the, the column headers. And then as they crisscross, um, you can see the differences that encompass emotional intelligence, right? So you're, you're taking really four factors and you're converging them to see where they line up and to just understand better the, the framework of emotional intelligence. So personal competence versus what I see, the crossover there, that's self-awareness. Personal competence versus what I do, the overlap there is self-management, right? So being aware of what you're doing, we know people that don't have any self-awareness and they can be difficult to have conversations with. Maybe they talk over you constantly. They don't pause, they don't let you talk. They don't recognize your body language versus self-management, that's you. Like, are you managing your actions so that if you notice that somebody is annoyed or, or trying to leave in a conversation, do you actually manage yourself and let them leave or give them an escape route by saying, you know, let me let you go, let's talk about this later. Mary, what about the bottom two, social competence versus what I see and what I do? What are the differences there? Yeah, so instead of looking in, you're looking out. Um, social confidence, uh, competence, I should say. Um, what I see is just being aware of what's going on around you. Um, are people interested in what you're saying? Just, you know, like Isaiah was saying, or I, the example that comes to mind is personal space. You know, are people, how are they physically in, in relation to each other? Um, and then social competence and what I do is about relationship management. Um, so being, being, using your self-awareness, but in a social setting, being aware of the other person um, Absolutely. and managing that. Yeah, and I think, I think the relationship management part is something that a lot of us as PhDs, we don't think about because we're, a lot of us are inside our heads. We're always evaluating the next experiment or the next lesson plan or whatever else that we need to do. Um, we will do a lot of analysis on our own. And so sometimes getting out of our heads can be difficult. And that's what social awareness is. It's where you can get out of your head and the purpose, what you want to do, and you can consider your audience. This is hugely important uh, when it comes to your job search, your career. You show up to an interview or a site visit where you're going to have eight interviews. You have eight different personalities uh, you're going to be dealing with. Are you aware of those different personalities and how quickly can you become aware of them or understand them uh, during each of the individual interviews versus just understanding yourself and what you want, which is the job? Of course you want that, but are you focused? Can, can you focus on their needs? Can you understand their needs? And then how can you build those relationships, right? So the actions versus just the observations. So great points, Mary. Uh, the next study here is from, uh, it was posted in Talent Smart, and it looked at 33 different workplace skills, and it really zeroed in on emotional intelligence, and it found that it's a, it's a very strong predictor of performance. So here's the nuts and bolts of why hiring managers care about this. Because if you have good emotional intelligence, you're going to perform better on the job, because you're not going to be awkward or create awkwardness. You're not going to be arrogant and shut other people down. You're going to be able to work as a team and get a lot done. And you yourself, you're actually going to be more productive because you don't have issues going on in terms of regulating your own emotions internally. You're not going to be your own biggest obstacle. So if we look at this figure, it shows that 90% of top performers have high EQ. That's what they found. 
um, and EQ is responsible for 50%, 58% of your job performance overall. Um, Mary, what's, what about the, the number, the dollar figure? If you can walk us through that and tell us, that it, does any of this surprise you? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to know that you can make more money if you're emotionally intelligent. I mean, apparently $29,000 more. Um, people with high EQ make $29,000 more annually than their low EQ counterparts. Yeah. And if you, if you don't get tied up on emotional intelligence or EQ and you look around you, even in, if you're still in academia and you look at the people that have, you know, gotten the promotions or even got a, you know, a, a, their own lab or classroom in the first place, the people that went on to be administrators or deans, it's not, it's not necessarily people that are doing the best research. It's not the people that are the smartest in most cases. This has actually been shown scientifically to be the case. Uh, there's peer-reviewed journal articles in Nature, Cell, Science that have shown that the, the best science is not uh, rewarded. Uh, it's the, the most well-connected labs, the most well-connected professors and classrooms, etc. So it's not just about the, the IQ or the data or the level of uh, intelligent uh, design on anything. It, there's also this relationship component. Mary, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that this is something that you've experienced, you know, postdoc uh, career as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned grants and the first thing I thought of, well, it's the people that can communicate it better. That's knowing your audience, knowing what they want to hear. If you get reviews and you're responding to them, it's sort of reading into what actually they're asking you for. Um, I mean, I think that's sort of an example a lot of people can, can relate to. It's, it's everywhere, this emotional intelligence, right? And it, it influences how you communicate, how you present yourself, how you interview. I see a lot of PhDs are like, this is not fair. Like the best research should get the most funding or the smartest person should be rewarded despite how they act or whatever. You can think that all you want, but the, we are social creatures. There's so many studies across sociology, uh, social sciences in general, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics. We just are. And so if you can't get along with other team members, you can't do really big things. It's, it's just impossible to do it by yourself. It really is. Um, right. Tried long enough, you've learned it. Um, so that's why this stuff is important. So we're looking at a career builder survey here. Uh, found that more than one third of employers are placing greater emphasis on hiring and promoting people with emotional intelligence. So they, instead of saying EQ, they use EI here. So 71% of employers say that they value EI over IQ in their employees. 71%. Now, again, this is important because who's your audience? Most of hiring managers, recruiters don't have PhDs. So they're not, they don't really value intellect the same way. They might value other things like uh, tenacity and relationships. In fact, I can tell you that most of them value that over just how smart you are. 59% uh, of employers would not hire someone with a high IQ, but low EI. Mary, is this surprising? Any thoughts on this? No, I mean, it's not. I mean, I've been in the interviewee and interviewer situation. You can know your stuff well, if you can't communicate it and, you know, answer the question they're asking and, and respond based on their, their sort of social cues, you're not going to convince them that you can do the job, right? Just from the, from the interview. Yes. Uh, so we rely a lot on our technical skills and they are obviously really, really important. Um, but definitely I think PhDs need to make sure they're paying a lot of attention to the sort of EQ, the social part of, of, of the job search. Yes. And I hope that this is making you a little bit angry because I love making PhDs angry by this data because we're just like, but it's the technical skills, it's right, right? Being right isn't enough if you wanna get a high level job and you have to work with people. 
right? It, it's, it's really not. That's important. And you want to buy for solutions. You want to buy for what's right, et cetera. We've had a lot of, of these interdisciplinary guests on that have talked about this, but you have to be able to rally people toward you. I think my favorite study on this overall or, or review or story about it is, I forget the individual physician's name, the first person to really realize that washing their hands was important. But the guy had, you know, what we would call no emotional intelligence whatsoever. So he basically did all these lectures just saying, you all, you were all idiots for not washing your hands. You're spreading these germs they didn't even know about. And because of that, the entire medical community hated this guy. Just said, they just dug in and said, no, this is stupid. It's not even important. Like, what are you talking about germs, right? And it, it caused a lot of deaths. Like that was the toll because he couldn't get over his own ego or arrogance or consider his audience, right? And I say that respectfully, um, to get other people on board first. So when you hear things like, um, when you hear us talking about uh, working with hiring managers and recruiters and getting them on your side and focusing on the transferable skills, there's, there's, a, there's a, less, a deeper lesson there. It really does matter. It's gonna help you do better work and it's gonna help you help more people. Like so many of you are so talented. You have so many skills, um, but, they're, but they might be being blocked or slowed down in terms of their ability to impact humanity um, by your, your denial of, of the importance of transferable skills. Uh, so let's go through another figure here before we bring on our very special guest. Top areas of failure for new hires. So 23% of the reasons that people failed during the first 18 months after being hired was lack of emotional intelligence, with, which was second highest, just right behind coachability, as in trainability, which you could argue is emotional intelligence. So do you want to walk us through this figure, Mary, and tell us your thoughts? Sure, yeah. So the, the top one is coachability, and I agree with Isaiah that, that I think that encompasses emotional intelligence to a large extent, and emotional intelligence we already saw was 23%. So that, that's a big reason to, <laughs> to fail, a very uh, reminder that you should be really working on being self-aware um, and aware of the people you're with, empathetic, um, motivation, 17% don't last because of low motivation. Um, temperament, 15%. Um, and technical competence, that's only 11%. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think maybe, I don't know if that, what that says about the hiring situation where technical skills, they can get that right in terms of finding the right candidate, but then um, emotional intelligence and coachability. I mean, just to comment on emotional intelligence, maybe, you know, if you're not so self-aware, you didn't notice that something was going on, but then you get feedback that, oh, you know, we'd like you to work on this thing. If you respond to that, then you're coachable, right? So I think that's the difference there. Yeah, great point. And I do like that technical confidence is on here because it is important. We don't want to say that your technical skills you've worked really hard for, your ability to um, learn advanced techniques uh, isn't important. It is. But what's even more important is that transferable skill I just mentioned, your ability to learn quickly. That's not like a technical skill in itself, it's a transferable skill. Your ability to just do research, a transferable skill. Um, so think about those things when you're applying and certainly when you go into to interviews. So there's, there's another chart here on talent smart showing emotional intelligence is connected to increased earnings. We've talked about that. So the higher your EQ score, the more money you make. Absolutely true in industry. If you can build relationships, you have professional awareness, uh, you, not only are aware, but you're doing the things that matter, right? It's one thing to know that relationships are important, but it's another to behaviorally be able to 
recruit internal sponsors. You've heard us talk about that. People that are going to say good things about you at meetings you're not at. Um, and then Mary, I want to get to this one too before we bring our guest on. I love this one because it talks about intent. So in a recent radio show, we were talking about the PhD code and intent was this big focus. Like you, you can have intelligence or emotional intelligence, but if your intent is bad, it can be dangerous and it can be a bad thing, right? So people with high EQ can be manipulative and short. And this is, uh, it's called emotional intelligence has a dark side. It's from semanticscholar.org. It's a great paper with great figures. And, and this first figure, they're looking at pro-social behavior on, a, on the y-axis. The blue line is high emotion regulation knowledge. The red dash line is low emotion regulation knowledge. Let me make sure I can get it all on the screen here. And then on the x-axis, low moral identity, high moral identity, just meaning that you have a, a sense of morality, like you want to do the right thing. And in short, the person, uh, the blue line, the person who has high emotion regulation knowledge, meaning high EQ, if they also have a high moral standard, they're going to have more pro-social behavior. So those are linked in that sense, or correlative at least, right, Mary? I mean, does this, does, does this surprise you? Yeah, not at all. I mean, being concerned about others is being social and reading cues and, and, and interacting, right? That's what it is. But this, right, and there's a, there's a table here that we don't have time to go into with it as well, but there's a second graph, and this is the concerning one. So high emotion regulation knowledge is in the blue again, red dash line, low emotion regulation knowledge, so high EQ, low EQ. And on the uh, y-axis this time, they're looking at interpersonal deviance. So not pro-social, but basically not anti-social either in the sense, because we think of that as isolation, but more about more manipulation, deviance. And then we have uh, on the x-axis, low Machiavellianism and high Machiavellianism. So Machiavelli, the author of The Prince, basically like a, has become to be known in, in culture as the uh, guidebook on how to be manipulative to get what you want. And what are they showing here with the, the blue line? Um, so if you're highly self-aware and aware of others, um, and you have ill intent, <laughs> yeah. those two can be, those two can be paired and, and you can be quite manipulative, um, and maybe you even get away with it. So, yeah. So, you know, this is where people can start being, uh, manipulative, even sociopathic, et cetera. So intent matters. So we're not saying, you know, don't learn this skill and then use it manipulatively, learn this skill to leverage your technical skills and the things that you want to do in the world and to, to advance your career and to, to better humanity. So that's the, the final takeaway here. Mary, thank you for being on. Great to thank see you. you. Thank Please you. thank Mary in the chat box if you would. Very excited to keep moving along. Uh, we have our very special guest is here. I'm going to do a, a brief intro and then bring him on. We have Justin Bariso here, author of EQ Applied. I'm going to show that book here in a second. He's a management thinker and doer. Uh, Inc. and Time Magazine contributor. Justin is an internationally known author and speaker who helps organizations and individuals develop their emotional intelligence. Um, his thoughts on leadership and EQ draw over a million readers a month. Wow. And LinkedIn named him a top voice in the field of management and workplace culture three years in a row. Trifecta, his new book, EQ Applied, shares fascinating research, modern examples, and personal stories that illustrate how emotional intelligence works in the real world. He's on LinkedIn. All of you have been increasing your LinkedIn activity, especially if you just joined our membership. So go say hello to him on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash I-N slash Justin Bariso, B-A-R-I-S-O. 
Um, you can see here, great, look at this. I love his banner. We're gonna talk about this later in the members only portion of the show. I love his banner picture. See, like we said, having text there can be powerful. He has a great website, very easy to remember, EQ Applied, E-Q-A-P-P-L-I-E-D.com. Check it out, lots of case stories and articles. Uh, information about his book is here. There's a chapter list. This is his book, EQ Applied. You can get more details with some links on his website or you can go to Amazon and search EQ Applied, The Real World Guide to Emotional Intelligence. This is a fantastic book and I wanna thank Justin for sending it to me. Highly recommend it, get this book. It's gonna give you a ton of information that's gonna help you with your interviews, with networking. It's gonna give you key words to use to put on your resume and your LinkedIn profile too. And with that, we're gonna bring on Justin. I'm gonna have him start his camera here, which I think Lisa might have done for me already. And then we're gonna jump into our questions uh, with Justin. Justin, good to see you. Hey, Isaiah. Thanks for having me on. It's great, great privilege. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here. And I've been yeah, very excited to talk to you because I've been doing a lot of reading about EQ versus IQ and the differences, and it's just a fascinating field. Um, and I wanna dig into that, but I always wanna start with your book. I know what it takes to, to write a book. I can't even imagine um, how much more difficult it is. You know, every few months that goes by, it becomes more difficult to get a book out there and publish it and to get, get recognition for it. Your book has amazing reviews, but why? Why did you write your book? What was the drive that pushed you all the way through writing all those pages? Oh, thanks, I, I appreciate that. So brief uh, story about me. So I have a much different background probably from uh, much of your audience. <laughs> I started off, um, Years ago, I worked uh, for a huge nonprofit in New York City. I actually worked for the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is, you know, a, a very different thing from what most people do with their lives. Um, but it was a great start for me. You know, obviously, I went there for faith-based and spirituality reasons. But, um, you know, we were working. There were thousands of us. You know, I had a team, for example, of 20, 30 people. Um, and we were volunteers. We weren't making money. So we had to, we got schooled in um, the, what I didn't realize at the time is emotional intelligence, how to manage others, how to communicate with others, how to motivate others. You couldn't motivate them with the carrot, right? Because nobody was getting paid. You know, we got this small stipend every month, um, but it, it really taught me a lot of these interpersonal and intrapersonal skills that later, um, years later when I moved to Germany, my wife is from Germany, and I would work, I started a small little consulting business working with German executives, um, which if you know anything, maybe you even have some, uh, some German PhDs, listening in, they have an excellent, generally speaking, um, command of the English language. They were having so much trouble with, um, you know, these, these emotional miscues with, they, they spoke English very well, but very direct, a lot like New Yorkers, actually. Yeah, and if you're working with anyone other than New Yorkers, um, then, you know, without necessarily concern for the other person's emotions, a lot of times just really, really bad stores, horror stories. And there's this, um, there's a saying in German, I learned it pretty early on, says, and loosely translated, that means um, as long as you're not getting yelled at, you're getting all the praise that you need. <laughs> so that's kind of their management style. And uh, so just kind of helping introduce that too, that um, that's not the best way to motivate and work with your teams. Um, and, and as I, you know, did that work, I eventually um, got a, this, this column for Inc. Magazine and there just really seemed to be a gap there in emotional intelligence. So I benefited a lot from um, PhDs like your, like your um, audience, like Daniel Goleman, of course, who we consider kind of the godfather of uh, emotional intelligence and 
Um, I, I linked up pretty early on with Dr. Hendry uh, Weisinger, who some may have heard of. He's also a best-selling author, great emotional intelligence thinker to kind of get to know the science of it. But what was really missing in the, in the, um, the online space was practical examples. How does this translate to the real world? Not just case studies, but you know, relating that to, um, uh, to, to people working under their manager, to managers themselves. And so that's what I kind of started filling in and using stories from the real world, world stories from my experience and stories from the news, um, which you know, kind of uh, catches people's attention, um, but helps them to see how emotional intelligence is really applied right there in the real world. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I love that you brought up Germany because I, I worked in Germany for- oh, Really, I didn't know that. Almost two years, 18 months. And uh, you're, you're right, there's a big difference. Like the, 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 you know, culturally in terms of the emotional intelligence or the application of it versus, you know, the UK or the US and, and different countries you work with there, very direct, very different. And it doesn't mean that one culture is right or wrong. It just means that no matter what your background is or what you're used to, considering your audience is crucial. And that's what I, what I love about your book because it helps us consider our audience. So I just wanted to get the framework down of what EQ is now. So thank you for sharing that. And if you haven't yet, please say hello, uh, if you would, in the chat box to Justin. And Justin, what is emotional intelligence? How do you define it you know, in a two sentences or less? And then if you branch out from there, from the definition, what are the, what, what does it encompass in terms of individual skills or, or, or the overall framework? Sure thing. <clears throat> so maybe just a short note on EQ, because I noticed um, like in some of your uh, literature there, it's, it's um, called EI and most of your audience might recognize it as that too. So actually most scientists prefer the abbreviation EI. And the reason why I use EQ is two reasons. Number one, it's much more recognizable across cultures. Um, so as you speak in other countries, almost everyone knows it as EQ. Oh, Secondly, wow. it's just a, I feel, since I'm trying to hit the practical side, I feel like it's a great shorthand for practical knowledge. We talk about someone that has a great basketball EQ or some um, IQ or someone who has a great um, football IQ. And, you know, we talk about their practical knowledge, right? And so emotional intelligence, um, EQ, EI, however you want to call it, it's the ability to identify, understand, and manage emotions. So that includes your own emotions, as you talked about a little bit earlier, um, being able to take feedback, being able to, um, to, to grow, uh, to keep your emotions in balance, to, to take criticism, for example. That, that's one aspect of it. But then it's also um, your relationships with others, being able to manage those, being able to um, communicate, as you mentioned already, in a way that others can understand, being able to understand your audience. So it's the knowledge, it's understanding how these emotions work, and then it's the practical, it's being able to, to put that knowledge into action. And um, you know, I try to sum that all up, and that's the tagline of my book, is making emotions work for you instead of against you. And that's something that we all have to do. I mean, I've been studying this for years, and still I get myself into situations where I'm about to respond to an email. And uh, if I look at that, that response an hour later, it's like, oh, man, what am I thinking? You know, or I, I react to my kids or my wife. And when I say, why did I react that way? You know, so it's, it's really a lifelong process. But the more we're aware of it and working on it, then the better we'll do. No, I, I completely agree. And the interesting thing for me is, is that something like EQ, like for a long time, people just kind of ignored. And then it started to gain some traction, I guess, in pop culture. But now it started to really uh, percolate and explode in academia. And there's really two, I mean, two schools of thought to oversimplify. Is 
you know, EQ really matters, it's different than IQ, et cetera. And then there's other people that are vehemently against the idea that EQ is different than IQ. I'm sure you've read this. Like you, you search the internet, it's very easy. EQ doesn't exist, it's just IQ. And the IQ test uh, evaluates EQ as well. So what, what do you say when you hear arguments like that? Like what new research is out there? You know, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter, Isaiah. <laughs> so honestly, to me, it doesn't matter. And I've had people, yeah. you know, kind of attack me on LinkedIn, say EQ is pseudoscience. And, you know, they'll say this stuff. It's, it's rare, actually. I mean, 95% of the comments are all positive. But you get um, uh, once in a while those coming in, and, and they're usually intellectual. And the funny thing, okay, here's the funny thing, is, you know, my response to those people are, is, okay, explain to me more, elaborate. And by listening to them and hearing them out and having a, a discourse with them instead of like shutting them down, I feels like proving that emotional intelligence exists, you know, and, and just because to me, it doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it EQ, you can call it empathy, you can call it because, you know, empathy obviously is a, is a facet. But if you believe that it's, uh, it's just a facet of IQ, hey, so be it. The important thing is that, again, we're working to make emotions work for us, not against us. That nobody can deny. Nobody can deny that there's been a point in your life where you have made a decision or you have said something or done something that you later regret and that it's because you were in an emotional moment. And, you know, it's um, emotional moments are not bad. You know, as uh, we talk about the amygdala being the part of the brain that, that produces flight, fight, flight, or flee response, that's a good thing, right? If we're getting attacked, then we need to be able to, to fight, flee, or freeze. But um, again, it comes down to when do those moments hurt you? See, at times, if someone really is attacking you, your family, you need to get out of there. You need to fight sometimes. You have to do whatever you, you have to do. But there are other times where we misinterpret what someone is saying to us, or we misinterpret the, the, the situation we're in, just us alone, and then we react in a way that we later regret. And, and that's, to me, what emotional intelligence is all about, is recognizing those moments. If you don't want to call it emotional intelligence, if you don't want to call it EQ, that's fine. But just recognize these moments and, and work on them. And that's what, we're, what, we're, what I'm trying to encourage for myself as well. Yeah, it's, I think it's great that it's uh, reached the point that it has. It's on the same trajectory as everything from, I mean, just psychology in general, right? When Freud and people were starting, they were just like, this is pseudoscience. This doesn't you know, matter. And it was ignored for a long time. And now people are fighting it, which is a good thing. And then, you know, after the fighting phase, they, they usually accept it. And we know, like you said, we know emotions exist. We know things like empathy exist. We know relationships exist and your ability to be successful in those areas. So whatever the framework is that helps us understand that better, that is science, right? The framework itself. Exactly. So. Exactly. And I think there's advantage you know, again, I won't fight over it. So, so if someone, you know, the, the, the key is in growing those abilities. But I think there is advantage in studying it um, separately. Because, for example, this, this uh, um, study that you raised a few minutes ago with the Machiavellianism, um, you know, this is something that's relatively new. Um, mm -hmm. But it's very similar to, to IQ. And, hey, you can use your intelligence for, in a good way or, or an evil way, quote, unquote, um, you can do the same thing with EQ, and we see it. You know, we've seen some very high EQ people that make it high up in the company, but they're using it in, in a way that most of us would frown upon. And, and that's why I like what you said earlier, that um, it comes, you know, it's not just intelligence. It's not just emotional intelligence. You have to link it to morality and integrity and these things as well. Yeah, that's a good motivating factor, too. If you don't want to learn about it to advance your career, for example, that's our practical usage. You need to at least understand it so it's not used against you or to hold you back in your career, et cetera, because 
if you can admit that there might be a sociopath or just that somebody might be manipulative, you're admitting that this framework is valuable. So I want to stay on the topic just for a minute uh, for you, you know, based on your research, your real world experience, what is this, how to best use EQ? So how, do, how can you, let's say you have no EQ as far as you know it, you are very antisocial, you, you know, talk to one person a week, you don't, can't really read body language, you don't understand emotions, you're starting from scratch. How could you elevate your EQ and then how can you be sure you're using it in the proper way for, uh, for, with, with a good intent? Sure. So the, always the first step is self-awareness, right? Because we talk about self-awareness, um, understanding self, understanding emotions and self that leads into uh, self-management. So being able to actually keep those emotions in balance, social awareness, understanding others and how emotions affect them and their decision-making, what they say, what they do, what kind of mood they're in and uh, relationship management, taking all that together and managing your relationships. But all of it goes back and starts with self-awareness because if we can't understand how um, we ourselves process emotions, if we you know, wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we're in a bad mood that day or that week and that's affecting now our own work, it's affecting our relationships with others and we don't even see that, that's a major problem, right? And then on the, on the flip side of the coin, if uh, you know, we are in a very joyful mood and we're overcommitting, oh yeah, I'll help you with this and I'll help you with that and yeah, I'll do this and that. And then we come back you know, a week later, why did I say yes to all these things? You know, there's no way I can do this. And now, again, we're regretting the decisions we, we made. So it all starts with self-awareness is, is being able to um, recognize these emotions in ourselves, recognizing how they influence what we say, what we do, um, and, you know, there's a few ways to do that. It starts with just thinking. So your uh, audience are, are, is made up of great thinkers. So just blocking out time, you know, a lot of times we are doing a lot of thinking about our work, but we're not necessarily doing thinking about ourselves. So blocking out time, whether it's a few minutes every day or um, week, and just looking at um, a lot, you know, it, it's great if we're proactive about these things, but let's be honest, a lot of times it comes after the fact, unfortunately. So we do have a blow up or we do have um, something that went wrong. Okay, we're imperfect, that's gonna happen. But now take some time after that. If, if I sent the angry email, make sure I take 20 minutes, half an hour the next day. Why did I send the angry email? Did I misinterpret something? Um, what could I have done differently? Um, you know, asking these questions builds self-awareness. And then the, and the second key to build, building self-awareness besides our own thought and con, uh, uh, pondering is asking for someone we trust, asking their feedback. Because we all have blind spots, we all have these perspective gaps. So whether it's a, a colleague, a mentor, or a, a family member, maybe it's a, our partner or um, uh, an aunt, our mother, father, but having someone that we can trust, that we can go to and ask them, how do I handle these situations from your perspective? And you know what? <laughs> You're going to get some feedback. You can get some criticism at times if they're honest with you, okay? And 90% um, of the time, that criticism is going to be rooted in truth. And that's great feedback to help you grow. But check it out. Even if you feel they are 100% wrong, okay, you do not agree at all what they're saying, you're still getting a valuable window into how they perceive your actions, how they perceive the way you handle yourself and the way you communicate. Because I'll tell you, if they perceive it that way, they're not the only ones. So, you know, it's not, again, it's not deciding who's right and who's wrong. It's how are you perceived? Um, and that can, that's how you build that, that self-awareness, which can then translate to the other abilities as well. 
No, I think that's great. So tracking is crucial. Um, something that I did, which is, you know, I think there's more, there's more value in the feedback from others is I just every hour on the hour, I did this for a few days. I tracked when I was the happiest and then when I was the most frustrated. And you'll see, you'll see a curve, right? I mean, you'll see some triggers. Like for me, I had to make a rule that I can't agree to anything after I drink my morning coffee. Because after I drink my coffee, the caffeine kicks, I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Yes, I want this. And I'm so fired up. And then I'm like, you know, later in the day, I'm like, what did I just do? I can't I have no time for this. Like you just said, overcommitting, right? And at the end of days, if we or a day when you're particularly exhausted or willpower depleted at the end of the week, you think this doesn't make any sense. I don't want to do that. Like, what am I doing? You're like evaluating your life when you're in the worst emotional state to evaluate your life and your goals. And so I love, I love what you're saying there and having that kind of self-awareness just in yourself can be dramatic, but asking other people about it too can really give you some insight. So great points. Um, so speaking about how other people see you, I want to make it practical here. A lot of the people that are, that are joining us, they're just starting off in their career. They're trying to get their, their first job or their next job. What advice do you have for, for like your, your clients Some insider tips in terms of showing that you understand the importance of EQ, right? not just having it, but also showing it to uh, a hiring manager during an interview, right? What kind of questions could you ask to show that you understand it? How could, how could you just show it too? any, any insider information you could give us? Yeah, definitely. Well, just let me get, let me give a shout out first to, to your audience too, because like I said, I, I didn't, I don't have that doctorate. I don't have that degree. And I benefited so much from the connections I made through the years. Like when I was writing the book, I really needed uh, someone to, to, you know, I did my own research, you know, very thoroughly, but I need someone to, to back me up to make sure I wasn't getting anything wrong, make sure I wasn't describing anything wrong. And, um, you know, so just a, a little shout out to Lorenzo Diaz Matei, who is a, um, an assistant to uh, Joseph Ledoux, who's really big in the neuroscience Hello. world. And uh, Lorenzo just um, went off the charts in helping me, um, you know, on the scientific side to really make sure these things were coming across and, and that I wasn't going to misrepresent anything. So I really have a, a strong uh, admiration uh, for your audience and, and for what they bring to the table um, for helping people like myself. So hopefully I can give a little bit something back. So for example, um, with a hiring manager, you know, um, this is advice I've given in the past is you want to be able to, to showcase what you're able to do. And some, some of you will say, you know what, I'm a horrible marketer. Okay. I'm, I'm good at the technical, you know, I, I've done things, I've learned things, but um, it's very uncomfortable for me to talk about myself. And, and that's okay, you know, but you, you have to learn to just um, to be able to talk in actions and, and what you've done and then you can frame it in different ways. You can frame it in what you've learned from it. And this is actually very advantageous because, you know, this kind of became famous in Silicon Valley, but I think it's spread all around, which is uh, nobody wants any brilliant jerks, right? Nobody wants to work <laughs> with a brilliant jerk. I think uh, Ariana Huffington helped popularize that. So, you know, being able to frame it um, in, in what you've learned from others and, what you've and, and how you've benefited from your experiences helps them to see that you're not just kind of touting your own horn, but it, you can speak about the things that you've learned and speak about, you know, the, the accomplishments in a way that, um, that frames it as always learning, you know, and that's something else that's very important to, to most companies nowadays is um, how, how can we show that this person is not just going to come in and, um, you know, try to change everything, try to rule the roost, but that you're also willing to learn, you know, and so also, you know, very important is, is um, giving thought ahead of time to what questions you're going to ask the interviewer. Um, of course, you've done your research. You already know about the company or you already know about the 
the organization uh, that you want to work with, um, but thoughtful questions about um, how they've um, how they plan on on dealing with this in the future, or um, how you know what what people have appreciated about working with them. Things like this shows that interest in the company. That shows you're not just coming in to to bring things to the table, but also to learn. Yeah, well said. And I think the questions is a great way to control the conversation. A great way to showcase that you you know you can ask things that go beyond the technical skills how how what's the culture like how do people get things done together how do you, you know what what feeling are you trying to create in the office stuff like that um can be very helpful last question i, I just wanted to be sure to ask this because we had it come up a few times in the chat box from christine and others let's say you had a particularly bad experience and this is a, a common interview question right like tell me about a time you had a difficulty with an advisor or manager or whatever how'd you overcome it um if you had a bad experience and you want to leverage that to show that you could overcome problems, how can you do that in an emotionally intelligent way? Good question. Let me think that, about that for a second. So you're talking about um, uh, a problem that you actually overcame. Yeah, like how, do you, how can you position a negative incident in terms of a positive light in a way that would resonate with an audience where you're not you know, trying to be a, a braggart or you're not trying to put down the other person Right? Is there a, it seems like a kind of a delicate answer, which is why they ask it so much. But what would you recommend? You know what people really um, are drawn to is vulnerability and authenticity. So of course, in a, in a, um, in that type of environment with, with an interviewer, the last thing we want to do is make ourselves uh, seem bad or, or, or talk about a mistake that we've made. But you know what? 99% of the candidates are coming in doing that. <laughs> and they're trying to make themselves seem like the best person possible. And if you instead can speak very authentically about something that you absolutely did not realize, a major failing of yours, you know, like I, I talked a lot about this question, um, what is your greatest weakness? Because I feel like even a lot of the advice online is bad advice, which is you know, you hear like, uh, oh, well, you know, talk about, oh, I'm, I'm a workaholic or, uh, you know, I try too hard, you know, things like this. No, that's the last thing a hiring manager wants to hear. They want to hear how you've grown. So be vulnerable. Talk about something that you, a weakness that you had, maybe even it's a weakness that you still have because we all have them, right? And that's going to help you stick out in their mind. Few people, first of all, can, can, can identify the weaknesses they have because they might be a blind spot. And, very, and even fewer people are willing to acknowledge those, especially in a job interview. But if you can acknowledge a weakness you had and then how you overcame it, how you learned from it, how you're continuing to, to deal with that weakness, that will really stick out in, uh, in the mind of an interviewer. And let me, let, let's be honest, that one mistake that you've made is not gonna keep you from getting the job. If you, have, if you tick all the other boxes, it's that one, um, that one, being vulnerable about that mistake and, and how you've grown from it, that's actually gonna make you stand out and make the hiring manager remember you. Absolutely, that was uh, fantastic. Fantastic, flourishing finish uh, of an answer and just great advice. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks Isaiah, it was, it was great. Please thank Justin in the chat box. Amazing to end on that kind of answer. So, so correct, right? We talk a lot about this hero story or the star technique, you wanna talk about your failures, but how you learn something from them. We could, of course, go into that uh, much more later, and we will. Um, I do wanna jump back real quick. Check out the book, EQ Applied. Get this book, reach out to him on LinkedIn. Say thank you for being on the radio show, a great way to add value. Uh, make sure you tell uh, Justin uh, thank you for adding uh, such value to our radio show. 
Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. So we're going to bring on Elizabeth Thatcher now. Very grateful to have her on. She is a very successful medical science liaison. Uh, you can go see her on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Elizabeth J. Thatcher. Um, and Elizabeth, she's a director, field medical uh, director in the malignant hematology, early development and compound lead, extensive experience as an MSL, multiple promotions in the MSL field already. Um, she is in medical affairs. She started as an MSL in a small pharma and is now a medical director at Pfizer. Uh, utilized both scientific and communication skills gained during her graduate and postgraduate careers, combined with expertise in oncology, immunology, neurology, with an emphasis on novel therapeutics, she has an extensive background in teaching, training, and public speaking. Just a, an incredible person when it comes to both EQ and IQ, uh, Elizabeth. So I'm going to bring Elizabeth on now. We're going to talk to her about her career track, how she got into being an MSL, what she learned, and, and of course, what you can learn from her. Elizabeth, good to see you. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Are you uh, home or on the road? I'm on the road in another hotel. <laughs> yeah, it looked like a hotel lamp. That's yeah. <laughs> so please say hello to Elizabeth in the chat box. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on for this, this career section. This is a big week for us in terms of uh, educating PhDs on the medical science uh, liaison career path. So I wanted to start from the beginning with you. When you were just starting your transition, how did you even find out about this career track and what excited you about it? So I came across the MSL career by Googling what I considered my strengths and PhD because <laughs> I wanted to find some, I didn't want to just give up on my PhD, even though I had decided I didn't want to do bench work anymore. So uh, I tried to take the skills, transfers, transferable skills that my colleagues said that they really value me for, and I just Googled it. And then I came across the MSL role that way. So it was kind of a roundabout way. And did you have any initial, I think like a lot of us, we initially think of all the reasons why we couldn't get into this position or any position. So did you have any initial limiting beliefs that came up for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every single job description asks for three plus years of MSL experience and clinical experience. And I was a, a traditional postdoc. I actually have an engineering background and then I got my doctorate in molecular biology and then a traditional postdoc. So I was like, I don't really have any clinical experience how am I ever going to break in hmm. definitely a limiting belief yeah and I think that's very common for this for so for the MSL role it's, it's growing it's very popular but PhDs and I think it would have been the same for me um, MSL was, was was just starting to explode I thought I don't have clinical experience no signaling pathway drug pathway all this different stuff um, but you got into this role so when you first started to try to get into this role, what are some of the early things that you did? Uh, I guess on the technical job search side, resumes, et cetera, and what are some of the early mistakes that you made? So I probably applied to 100 positions, just like you know, go, finding the job online and just applying cold 
into the system. And, you know, everybody tells you it's who you know in this field, but for some reason I felt like, you know, brute force hard work was going to be enough to overcome it. And I was going to be the unicorn and I wasn't going to have to network. Um, and I was, I was still a part of CSA at that point. Um, but I was being hardheaded. It wasn't until about like six months into it that I realized, okay, what I, my current strategy is not working. So obviously I need to change something up. Maybe I should try this networking thing. And I really jumped in with two feet for the networking. And ultimately I ended up with three job offers in the same week. And I think the major difference was that if you truly understand the MSL role, it is a relationship building networking job. So it makes sense that you have to network to get the job because it's sort of like proving that you have the ability to build those relationships before you even get the job. So when you get the referrals and you get references to people advocating for you for these positions, they're like, well, she can obviously do it. She's already got people in her, in her background, you know, that are rooting for her and, and, you know, pushing for her to be hired. Yeah. And I think the, the MSL career track, you know, to put it in the context of what we, we were just talking about today with EQ, it relies on this EQ, whatever you want to call that framework. And so basically you said, I'm going to do this without EQ, without relationships, without a network. I'm just going to power through it because I'm really smart and have these great technical skills, which is important to call out because a lot of us do that. And I want to say thank you for showing such great emotional intelligence by sharing that story, right? That vulnerable story. Uh, we just got done talking about that. But once you made the decision to value networks, relationships, professional awareness, these kind of things, things really took off, you ended up with three different offers. So I guess yes. as your role has progressed, have you seen this idea of, of EQ or whatever you want to call it become more or less important? And if it's become more important, which I'm just guessing is the answer, how, how so? How, how have you developed? How have you seen uh, the, your, your surroundings uh, or just the, the industry itself uh, develop in terms of placing an importance on EQ? Yeah, actually, I would say it's absolutely much more important, especially as I move up the career ladder. In fact, you know, I had my performance review not too long ago, so this is a very timely uh, <laughs> uh, right. webinar that we're having, and we the entire performance re review was about EQ and about how people at my current level and in my territory absolutely love me. And that, but that when new people meet me in, internally, they can be intimidated by me because I can be very abrupt and move very quickly in the internal meetings. And I mean, that's something that I am actively working on and exploring new ways. And I've learned, you know, one of the things that it's so simple, but it makes a huge difference is to take a deep breath before I start answering questions because it helps people feel validated that, okay, this is a, a good question that I asked even if you think it's not a good question, but it makes them feel validated. And then when you answer it, it's like, okay, yeah, we're on the same page. We're, we're growing together and we're learning together. And it's, it's such a small thing, but you know, it's something that I had to learn recently to help me engage internal colleagues better. And one of the things I learned along the way in the interview process is that I feel like, I felt like I got way further in the interviews if I smiled before I answered. So 
there's just something about that makes someone feel much more relatable and likable. If they smile as they're talking, it makes them feel, people feel like you're more engaged and that you're more excited about whatever the topic is. It could be the most boring topic in the world, but if you smile before it, they feel like you're excited and that you're enjoying the conversation and that you really want to be talking to them uh, specifically. So it's a, it's a small thing. It's such a small thing, but it makes a huge difference. And that emotional intelligence is just, so much more important as you move up the career ladder because now it's not just the people I'm directly talking to that are reading my body language and, and hearing my voices, but it's everybody else in the room that is listening in on the conversation, seeing how I interact with internal colleagues specifically, not just external uh, stakeholders, and they are judging me and they are evaluating me for when a new role comes up and they think, hey, I, I saw this Elizabeth Thatcher in that meeting and she was just amazing. We should reach out to her and see if she's interested in this position. Uh, you know, and that happens more and more as you move up the career ladder. And it's just so important that you're constantly practicing these different emotional EQ, different aspects throughout every aspect of your day. Well, fantastic tips. I mean, just super practical. All of you can start applying those right away. I love it. I learned a lot there too, Elizabeth. Thank you. Um, Last question I wanted to ask is, we talked about this week being enrollment week for the Medical Science Liaison Alliance, which is our fastest growing advanced program for, for any PhD that wants to get into an MSL. So why is this important to you? You give so much to this group along with uh, Yuri, who's the other program leader with you, who's coming on next. Why is this group so important to you? Why, why do you work so hard to help other MSLs get hired even after all this time being an MSL yourself? So, I would say it's probably both a selfish reason as well as an unselfish reason. I uh, Selfishly, I really enjoy rooting everybody on and celebrating everybody's successes. And, you know, I'm built, I am able to help them. I'm in a position now where I can help them. But that does not mean in six months they will not be in a position where they could, couldn't help, you know, they could help me in the future. So that's a little bit of a selfish reason to help. But I also get so much excitement out of seeing them grow. I felt like, you know, it was, it was difficult to break into this field. It was definitely difficult. And there are little things that you can do to make it so much easier that it's fun to share. I'm not one of those people that feels like, oh, it was hard for me. It should be hard for you. <laughs> I don't think it needs to be hard for the other PhDs. I think that we need to take over the basically the MSL world. And we are pushing some of those PharmDs and MDs out because PhDs are being valued more and more than, than they are in the field. And I think it's wonderful because not only do we have the background and the intelligence, the science, but we also have the ability to make strategic medical gains and help patients in this role. And it's really, it's really an extremely valuable role and I love it. Amazing. Thank you. We can tell from your enthusiasm and your energy that you definitely do. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Please thank Elizabeth in the chat box. That was amazing to have her on. And uh, yeah, great. I heard things I never heard before, despite 1,000 interviews. With <laughs> so thank you. Good to see you. Okay, so we're going to move right along and we're going to bring on the other program leader for MSLA just because it's a great time for us to share um, about this exciting career path. I love what Elizabeth said. In fact, I think I'm going to go on LinkedIn and I'm going to do a post, something like PhD, greater symbol than PharmD, MD, because PhDs are, they are taking over the MSL field. Uh, depending on the data that you look at, there's more PhDs, more new PhDs in MSL roles than anyone before. It used to be all MDs and, P, uh, and on PharmDs, but what 
industry employers, especially pharma companies have learned is that PhDs learn faster than anybody. They carry on conversations and dig into data better than anybody. I'm sorry, I know there's always exceptions, but by far your ability to dig into data and to do research and to analyze data crushes any other person with any other degree type. As far as the training, we, we just compared degree types. And this is what, this the secret's out in the, in the pharma industry. And Elizabeth uh, said that very, very well. So next we're gonna bring on Yuri Klatchkin. He is in medical affairs as well, of course, because he's a medical science liaison, senior medical science liaison in information and immunology at Amgen. He has experience at Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene, now Amgen. Um, very, very excited uh, for him to tell his story. You can connect with him on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash IN slash Yuri Klatchkin, K-L-Y-A-C-H-K-I-N, for those of you that are hearing my audio. And I'll bring on Yuri now. Really excited to have both Yuri and Elizabeth on. They're the two senior program leaders in the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. And it looks like you're traveling too, Yuri. How are yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Those same lamps. I know, right? It's <laughs> Hilton. Is it Hilton? It is. It's Hampton. Yeah, so, yeah same thing. We're, yeah. Elizabeth and I, we're not in the same hotel, I don't think. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we're at the Hilton property. That's for sure. That's amazing. All right. So... You can all tell I have a Hilton Monitors card because that's where I did all my traveling as a <laughs> But uh, Yuri, so you're on the road. I really appreciate you being here. Please say hi to Yuri if you would. Everyone. So I kind of want to walk through your path too because everybody's path's a little bit different. You started as an MSL in a, a contract position, right? And that's something we haven't really talked about. So I wanted to know how you found out about the MSL role. And then, you know, did you have concerns with the contractor role? How, what is a contract MSL role? Can you discuss that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So, um, Similar to Elizabeth, I really didn't know much about the, um, the MSL world. I had a few graduate school colleagues, or a few, one or two that had transitioned, and I've kind of kept in touch with them. But similarly to Elizabeth, I just thought it was such a far off goal that's completely unattainable. I was not really that confident that I could you know, transition to that role. And then um, essentially started talking to um, colleagues in the field, uh, some, you know, I have a couple of colleagues who, who are doing pharmaceutical sales and uh, they connect me to, to a couple of MSLs and um, essentially my networking really developed once I joined the Cheeky Scientist Association and uh, I met an MSL while I was presenting a poster at a conference and he actually came up to my poster and he looking at my research and I'm kind of hit off a conversation and then I followed up with a phone call with him, asking him the same questions you're asking me, like, how did you break in? And he said, listen, I've spent two years trying to find a prominent role in the industry, uh, but really the shortcut are these contract roles. You should really look into that. I mean, he said, not necessarily um, put all your eggs in one basket as a contractor, but, you know, diversify your, your job search, so to speak. And so that's why I started looking at into uh, contract MSL roles. So there's a three or four companies that are providing that service. So, uh, the medical affairs company, TMAC, is probably the biggest one. There's Trinet Pharma, there's uh, TARDIS, there's uh, Best MSLs, that's who I worked with. And uh, the gist of a contract company, what they do is they essentially, the pharmaceutical company will, re will reach out to them. Let's say Pfizer or, or Bristol-Myers Squibb will reach out to a contract company and will say, hey, listen, I need five or six MSLs for this particular project for the next six to 12 months. Who do you have? And then they look through their files their resumes and they'll say oh you know this person's expertise will fit your project and uh, how about we bring them on and so they they do the phone screens they do the on-site interviews 
and then you get hired on as a as a contractor for a particular company. But on the surface, and by all intents and purposes, you're actually an employee of that company. So your business cards will say Pfizer and or, or BMS or whatever, and you will go to all the BMS meetings, and you'll be in all the BMS calls, and uh, your KOLs will know you as a BMS MSL. But the only difference is that your paycheck is being signed by this third-party contracting company. And honestly, it's um, it's a great way to break in because it's the best of both worlds. One, the the pharma company, it's a huge risk for them to hire somebody without any MSL experience. Yes, it does happen, but um, it's it's uh, less often now just because there's so many experienced MSLs out there that they can they can trump you if you don't have an MSL experience. And also a lot of times when people think they want to be an MSL, yes, it's a great career and it's very attractive. A lot of times they go in like, man, it's just too much travel for me. It's just not for me. I don't like it. And then it's, it's a very easy, clean break if, if, if you feel like it's not for you. So uh, so the company can can cut ties fairly easily if it's a contract goal as opposed to if you're already in their uh, system permanently. So those are the kind of, it's very beneficial. Uh, another benefit of uh, being on a contract is they train you really, really well. My experience was that they, the training was by far the best I've ever gotten anywhere. The onboarding was very detailed, not only the science, but also what we're talking about today, the, the EQ, you know, how to conduct a meeting with the KOL, kind of how to ask questions, how to listen, how to take down medical insights, all the little things that, you know, a lot of MSLs who are more experienced will take it for granted, but as, as, as somebody who's very green in that field, that was just great, great knowledge and um, made, made my transition and made my job a lot easier when I, when I started. So that's, those are the benefits. And, and actually now when I talk to my colleagues uh, on my team, even PharmDs, uh, I'd say most of them started on a contract. So I'm a, one of my colleagues in, uh, in Seattle who was, he was a clinical pharmacist for six years in a hospital. I mean, he was like, you know, big time. You know, he did his residency, he did his in clinical pharmacy for five years. The only way he could, he could break in is, in a, is on a contract with, uh, with TMAC. I have three or four other colleagues with very similar stories, all from these, which are, you know, historically have, have had an easier time breaking into MSR roles. They've all, they've all broken in on a contract. So uh, it's, uh, it's a great way to break in. It's a great, great way to, um, to kind of feel out the, the MSL world. And, and also this, comp, this contract job is they pay really well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great salary. You get great salary, great benefits. If you complete the contract, it's usually a, um, a fairly generous bonus at the end. And at the end of the contract, what, what usually happens, the company will internalize you. If, if the company does not want to internalize you, they may extend the contract. If they decide to cut ties with you, then the contracting company will probably find another gig for you. But what happens more times than not is that you, your recruiters will see that you've had MSL experience already and they will and they will try to recruit you to other companies. So usually within that first you know, six to 12 months on a contract, You'll probably start interviewing elsewhere if, if for, for whatever reason you don't want to stay at, at your current uh, at your current company. So it's, it's really it's it's really win win. I, I really don't see the downside to to being on a contract. You know, pay is great, benefits are great, great experience, and uh, it's great and it's, it's great for the for the employer as well. Yeah, and I, th I think uh, the reason this is so important to talk about is because a lot of you you hear the word contract and you think, you know, is this like a industry postdoc where you get done and then they cut you loose 90% of the time. No, it's the opposite. Like 90% yeah. of the time they'll keep you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very high success rate to stay on, but you obviously yeah. get that experience too. And like you said, you can, uh, you know, 
quadruple, probably more, 10x the number of types of jobs you can get as an MSL right. if you consider contract roles. Right. 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 Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I started on my contract, they hired, I think, nine or 10 of us. And I left within 10 months just because I started interviewing and uh, found a different role. And the other people, the other eight people are still there at BMS. It's like five years, five years later, they're still there. They've all got internalized within 12 to 15 months and they're all still there and they're all been promoted and they're all doing great. And they were, they were brand new MSLs that started with me and now they're essentially senior or executive MSLs at that same company. A lot of them never left and they all got internalized. So. Perfect. Well, thank you, Yuri, for sharing uh, that about the contract roles. Great to see you on. A lot of us saw you on Monday as well. Oh, yeah. time, despite the travel. Absolutely. Thank no, no, thank you. Please thank Yuri in the chat box, if you would, for coming on. Great interviews with Yuri and Elizabeth on the MSL career track. So just a quick reminder uh, for all of you, go say hi to both Yuri and Elizabeth on LinkedIn. And then I'm going to pull up really quickly the enrollment page some of you are asking about for the MSL Alliance program. Now this is a program specific for PhDs who want to get into MSL roles. The only program specifically for PhDs only, not PharmDs, not MDs. If you want to get into the MSL role, you can get training on it. We have a special promotional pricing now. For those of you that are on our email list or you follow us on Facebook Messenger, you can get details on this. You are getting details on this. Um, if you said you wanted to, uh, and there are some special coupon codes out there, so ask around and you can get in and start exploring this career track for yourself. Again, our fastest growing advanced program for a reason. Uh, it's the highest paid job for PhDs who don't have industry experience right now. Highest paid job. So just go to msl.cheekyscientist.com for those of you listening by audio if you want to learn about that. Of course, if you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, if you want to have these radio shows or the podcasts that result from them sent to you, as well as blog articles or any other type of content, content you get to choose what kind. If you want to get on our list to receive content, go to phdsgethired.com, put your name and email on that page. You'll get an email that follows up that tells you exactly what kind of content you can get for free, whether you want to get the podcasts, the invites to the radio shows, the blogs, we do a special curated best of transition series every week where we take the best articles all over the internet about getting hired and advancing your career in industry as a PhD. We put them into one place so you don't have to go anywhere else to find it. Thank you very much for those of you who joined today. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pop, pop, wish. Let's <laughs> go.